Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. October 3rd, 2015, episode number 83. Tim's in town. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. And I have a special guest this episode. It's going to be uh, Tim Schuler and I chatting. And Tim, welcome to the podcast again. Hey, Kevin. Well, very good to be here. And thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It's been a while since we've had a chance to chat. In fact, it's now rolled into October and we're getting into fall activities. Um, I was chatting you with you before we came online about a couple of things that you have going on. You were supposed to do a show this weekend, sell some money. Yeah, my wife uh, was scheduled to do a Harbor Fest down in Sea Isle City, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, you, you pay, make the reservation, you pay for the table, um, you have some investment in time. And she was ready to go. But with the inclement weather, it, you know, with having a sideline bee business, you got to make a decision. Are you going to get all your stuff wet and get set up uh, just to go to a show where very few customers will come? So we made an executive decision in our kitchen and decided to pull the plug on that one and eat the eat the registration fee because we didn't want to have all of our easy ups and tables and products all messed up. So today in the rain, Patty stayed home uh, packing honey for next week because next week is the Ocean City Block Party. And I sat, uh, I actually went to a Villages and Partnership uh, Board of Directors meeting. And uh, both were good things to do on an inclement, cold, clammy, rainy day. Yes, in New Jersey, we have Hurricane Joaquin rolling off the East Coast. It was supposed to come right in and maybe even to South Jersey where you are. And fortunately, the hurricane took a right-hand turn and is going to go out to see. We'll only get some winds this weekend, but saw a lot of warnings for beekeepers to button down the hatches, keep their hives uh, tightened down. And I know a lot of things got canceled this weekend because of weather. Even though we didn't get the hurricane, Tim, we got some much-needed wind and much-needed rain in this nor'easter that's going through right now. Yeah, Kevin, we haven't had rain in South Jersey of any significant amount for probably a month and a half, two months. And you know, the ground definitely needs it. The plants that bloom definitely need it. Um, so I was happy to have that. I was very happy that the Hurricane Joaquin took a right-hand turn and did not come in. I still have uh, memories of Sandy and the devastation that that caused to beekeepers and homeowners alike all along the southern Jersey shores. Yeah, and I remember being an emergency management coordinator at one point when Hurricane Irene came through and the damage that did also. So always a blessing when the hurricanes turn out to see. You said to me also before we got started that you're doing some feeding of your bees. I'm doing the same. This is a time of year where you're going to top them off just to make sure that they're good to go into winter. Yeah, Kev, my own personal colonies are heavy right now. Um, but um, the bottom super he, 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 beekeeper needs to balance out between overfeeding and not feeding enough. So as far as I'm concerned, giving them a shot, a gallon or two of syrup a week, this time of year, um, nothing wrong with that, especially if they're heavy. If they're not heavy, you need to get the syrup on them and get it on them fast because uh, you're running out of time to fatten them up for the winter. 
Agreed. And we had a, you were up to my house not too long ago. You stopped in and you were making the observation of how dry all the plants were and what the grass looked like. We didn't have any meaningful rain July, August, even into most of September until now this nor'easter. And I think the weather person said we were down eight inches in our area alone. And uh, one of the things from our standpoint is there was no forage early for fall. A little bit of goldenrod pupped out at the end, but uh, my hives were light and I started feeding them at the end of July and through August. Kevin, it's so important for beekeepers to, to, to monitor uh, what's going on in their colony. I like to see a wet brood nest. What does a wet brood nest mean? That means on your brood frames that the upper corners and the, and the top of that frame have either stored honey or have have juice or nectar in there that the bees have readily available for feeding babies feeding young if you go into your brood nest and there's nothing in the corners of those frames whether there's brood on that colony needs food and it and it's hurting for food um, many beekeepers also think kevin that just because they see blossoms that there's actually nectar in those blossoms when there is no water in the ground there's no nectar in the blossoms so um, you know, it's important to keep a close eye on these things and take action as action is warranted um, as you're managing your colonies. And this is something that a lot of newer beekeepers, um, you know, kind of fail at. Yeah, agreed. We, we're seeing uh, a lot of beekeepers saying they're feeding at this point. They've seen the message. And I, I think when I looked at the plants, I went and looked at goldenrod. There was nothing on them around the margins until recently when for whatever reason when it got cooler it seems they had a little bit of moisture in them and uh i did start to see some nectar storage in in our hives um and bob Kloss, who weighs his hives has it on a scale started to see it finally grow in some weight that this uh nectar flow was coming in here for the minor one we have in fall yeah, that, and, and I'll tell you, Kevin, you hit the nail on the head when you just said it. You looked in the hives and saw it. A lot of times beekeepers want to monitor what's going on in the beehive by the flight that they see at the entrance. And that is a very poor indicator as to the condition of the hive. You have to go inside and see what's going on. I had a professor in college who said it's not enough to look, you must see, and it's not enough to listen, you must hear what's being said. And uh, it's so important to really uh, check those colonies periodically to see what's going on and take action if it's needed. So we're going to talk a little bit about feeding later on in one of the segments, Tim. But um, And also, I, I know we had a topic set up. I want to talk about the temperatures when we get to that because they're cold nights, what the recommended methods are. But I know you were someplace recently warmer. You were in Malawi, Africa, and you and I had a conversation about having the opportunity to talk more about the good work that you were doing there. Sure. Yeah. Back in July, I went on a trip um, to Malawi, Africa with Villages in Partnership, which is an organization um, that tries to partner together villages in America with villages in uh, the southern part of Malawi called the Sakata. It's a very poor um, village part of Malawi uh, where there's very little services. There's very little, there's no electric, electricity in most of the villages. Um, and people, you know, people don't have much at all. 
um, villages and partnership works there to assist with several key areas, one of which is clean water. Um, one, another one is if you look down by Zomba at the southern part of Malawi on the map on the screen, that is exactly where, where, the, where villages and partnership works, in the outskirts of Zomba. Um, and we're showing that on the screen. For those of you who are uh, listening along, you won't yeah. be able to see this, but on the video version of this, we do have this up on the screen. So you were in this area here where I'm showing on the... Correct. And, and what Villages and Partnership does is provide clean water services, um, working with, with the villagers. They put a lot of sweat equity into it. Um, the, the part of Villages and Partnerships mission that I work in is food security because many of these people or most of the people in the Sakata villages are subsistence farmers. They eat what they, they grow and they have very little expendable income. And I teach beekeeping and animal husbandry skills there. Uh, beekeeping primarily because a, a, a widow or a, a villager that has a couple of beehives can produce honey and wax, sell it, and generate cash income for their family. Um, that's really what my focus is. So it's an interesting uh, place. It looks like there's some mountain ranges or at least some hills. I see a lake to the right um, from the map we were looking at. What was the terrain like there, Tim? Dry? Well, it, it, was, it was dry at the, in, in July. They hadn't had rain in probably two months. Um, the farm that I that is my home base while I'm there is just at the base of the Zomba Plateau. So there is this huge volcanic mountain that rises up probably uh, maybe 3,000 feet behind the farm. And then you come down that, that, that range. The farm is at the foothills of it. And as you go forward, uh, you cross a blacktop road and then go into the Sakata villages, which are relatively low and very flat there. Um, there's a red dirt, which Africa is known for. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of red dirt there. Their main food that they eat is, is corn or they call it maize. And primarily that they make it into flour and then they cook it to almost like what Italian people eat called polenta. It's like a cornmeal mush. And that is their staple food that they eat most of the time. The problem this past year, Kevin, was, uh, there was too many, too much rain during the early growth of the maize plants, and they were damaged severely. So they have about a twenty percent um, of a. They have about twenty percent of a normal maize crop. So there's going to be a lot of people that, uh, you know, maybe not husbands and wives as much as uh, grandmoms raising three grandchildren because their parents died of AIDS, not having enough. Uh, food to see them through this famine that's coming uh, January, February, March, or uh, yeah, January, February, March. So uh, that's that's part of the message I'm trying to get out as well. So you're working with Villages in Partnership, which I have their website up on the screen here. Yeah, they got a, gr a lot of great stuff on that website that people could check out if they wanted to. And one of the things they have on their website is you. <laughs> I see a article about your trip over there in September. That's posted correct. in September. It was, yeah, it was posted in September, and that was me back there in July. 
Um, and in that particular picture, the beekeepers were showing me how they had been harvesting honey. What they would do is they would mash the combs and then they had no good way to separate the wax from the honey. So they would warm it and then they would try to pour it through a sieve. And it was really a problem because the sieve would plug up with molten beeswax. But I wanted to see how they were currently doing it before I could make recommendations as to better ways to do it. The cool thing is, Kevin, while I was there, um, we also um, crushed some comb and strained it through like a window screen material. And that worked really, really well. So we went into town. We got a local tinsmith to make us a couple of, uh, of containers that we could um, suspend screening in over top of nice, clean plastic tubs. And as they crush that wax, allow the honey to separate from the comb without using heat to do it, just using time, uh, like overnight. And I'll tell you, Kevin, it worked beautifully. And the beekeepers on the farm are very, very happy. And recently, you and I were having a conversation. You were telling me about a phone call that you got with them from them about changing some of their beekeeping practices. They were evolving their understanding. And we see in the picture that's on the screen, they use top bar hives. They have some Langstroth hives, but they were asking you questions about techniques in beekeeping. That's correct. Uh, Frank Monjamaica, who is one of the lead guys on Namangazi Farm, sent me an email and said, or a phone call and said, Tim, um, I want to I wanna know if I'm thinking right. He says, it's a, such a shame for us to destroy the combs when we harvest the honey because then the bees have to remake the combs. So he asked me if there wasn't a way that they could get a top bar frame where they could uncap the honey and reuse the comb. So the two of us talking together decided that we are going to, they are going to make several coffin hives, which would look similar to a Langstroth, except I mean, not a Langstroth, similar to a top bar hive. It would be long and narrow, but it would fit a Langstroth frame, which they have a bunch of them over there. And they are going to use um, that coffin type hive to see how, um, to see if they can reuse the combs, which I have no doubt they'll be able to do, Kevin, um, so that they can extract it and then re and then reinstall the combs back into the hive without forcing the bees to remake so much uh, so much of their wax. They like the fact of having reusable frames. They understand that that is much more efficient and a better use of of the colony's strength to, to reuse the frames and the combs. There you go. Yeah, so this this is a uh, smaller picture of what one would look like that they're envisioning. Let me see if I have a different, bigger resolution one. The other thing, Kev, is like you see how we have bees on legs here? That doesn't fly too good in Malawi because the ant problem, the ants are very aggressive. So what they do most of the time is they hang them by wires from trees, and then they keep the wires greased. So, but I think a coffin hive would work very well on wires because it has the general makeup of a top bar hive. Well, I remember discussing with you when you were in my yard the other day, the top bar that I have is the same dimension across the top so that a traditional Langstroth box could sit right on top of it. 
and you could have the best of both worlds. They could have their top bar hive underneath and Langstroth's on the top from which they could harvest honey. And I showed you one of those Kelly frames that comes with the notch that yeah. would fit right in a box like this. That's correct. The, the other issue that we run into over there, Kevin, is that um, the top bar hives are made by different people. So, I mean, you're even showing some pictures of top bar hives. The ones that are made by different people often have different dimensions. So while I was there, some of what we were doing is transferring bees and colonies out of top bar hives that had decay and rot and were, having, were not really properly made to begin with into newer boxes that were made well, but the dimensions were not accurate enough to make that transition easy. So the other thing we, we, I talked with the beekeepers about is making sure that all of the boxes that they have made, uh, whether it be a coffin-type box or a Kenyan top bar box, to make sure that those boxes are made all to the same dimension so that it's much easier for them to replace and swap out equipment um, in order to not, not waste anything. Yeah, that makes sense. They are they have to be extremely efficient with what they have going on. Um, you had said that you're going to plan another trip next year, and one of the things you're working on is changing the time that you deliver so you can get a full picture, even though you're only going a couple weeks at a time, of the glimpse of how they keep bees. That's correct, Kevin. So far, I've been there in November. November tends to be a dry time of the year they're they're waiting for the planting rains to come uh the first time i was there i was in i was there in march in march the the country is lush and green because they've had several months generally of rain by then and you've got acacia trees blooming um you've got other types of trees the the blue gums or eucalyptus are getting ready to bloom and that is really the beginning of the bee season that's when we start seeing march and april is when we start seeing uh, empty colonies occupied by swarms, and you really start to see some some colony buildup and nectar storage. Um, and uh, yeah, then I was also there in July. In July, there's still a little bit of honey, although the bees were were somewhat robby and they were somewhat nasty when we were harvesting. Um, more nasty than both in November and March. Uh, so next year, my hope is to go towards the latter part of August, beginning of September. And as you said, I'm really trying to put together in my mind what the cycle is for beekeeping in this country of Malawi. I can only imagine what it's trying to, uh, what it, what it's like trying to figure it out, visiting a week at a time. And if you, even if you did that in New Jersey, Tim, one year is different from another. So how do you get it all stringed together? Just when you think you know something, you could go back next year at the same time and not have the same experience. So it, it must be like a really big puzzle. It is, Kevin. And it, it, you're trying to make recommendations without, without practical experience or, ex, yeah, without experience. And I rely a lot on the beekeepers there by asking them questions. And my beekeepers at the farm that are understanding the biological process and the, and the change in a beehive. I mean, they pointed out one hive to me they harvested three times so far this year. This is their best producer. 
And I said to them, I said, well, geez, you guys need to, need to propagate, reproduce this hive. Well, they made a split off of that hive and they raised a queen and it took. So they were ecstatic because they took one of their best genetics and actually uh, ended up splitting it and it was successful in the split. And you know what, Kevin, that's what it's all about is having people that yeah. get a glimpse for that and then they begin to apply it and they will be teaching me very soon. And that, that's really what it's going to boil down to. Yeah, at some point they'll have enough wherewithal to give you reports. And how relevant is the beekeeping we do in New Jersey to what you're doing over there? Different well, type of bees, different type of environment, different type of hives. But the fundamentals, bees are bees. Is that a true statement? I mean, I'm sure there's differences. That's a true statement, Kevin. Um, fundamentally, bees are bees. Understanding um, the biological processes in a hive, understanding how to split a hive, works the same on an African race as it does on the European race. Um, these bees are noticeably smaller than Europeans. And I mean, it's, it's so noticeable. I mean, you just look at the comb, you look at the bee, and you know that they're not Europeans. Um, um, understanding how to split a hive is the same here as it is there. The thing that, we, that they don't have a good feel for is feeding. Um, and I believe strategic feeding, as it's very applicable in the United States, it's also very applicable there. While I was there, one of the experiments we did was we, we mixed up sugar syrup, put it out, and those bees took it in a matter of a half hour. They had it. Um, we also crushed sugar cane, crushed it, and added a little water to it, put it in a container, and the bees came and sucked all the juice out of that sugar cane as well. So if, if a beekeeper couldn't afford to buy sugar, if they can get a hold of sugar cane, um, that, that may work as a substitute to keep a colony that's going to starve or abscond from starving or absconding. Because I'll tell you, Kevin, starved colonies and colonies that leave your hives don't make no honey. That's right. Yeah. They understand that at the farm. They may not understand it in the village yet, in the villages yet, but at the farm, the beekeepers on site, who are the ones that are primarily responsible for teaching the village beekeepers, they understand that fact. And sometimes you have to sacrifice to keep your colonies alive so when the nectar comes, they can, they can capitalize on it and make something um, rather than just let them die or let them leave. They go all year long there, I'm assuming, right, depending on where their latitude is. Uh, yeah, brood rearing all year round, Kevin. Yeah. Can they plant uh, sugar cane and then let it, you know, you had suggested that they could crush the plants and the bees could get whatever exudes from it. Do they, they have a climate that they could do that? Oh, yeah. They grow sugar cane there. And quite frankly, you know, like we get a Snickers bar for a snack or a Hershey bar. You go into a trading center and they don't have them there. You know, what they have is stalks of sugar cane. And my Malawi friends, boy, they'll tear through that stuff so fast and make your head spin. Well, that's it. Yeah. They just chew it like uh, candy? What they do is it, it's almost they're almost like beavers. The first time I, I went there, I had just had a, had a cat put on a broken tooth. And so in the one village, that was our like our, our, our coffee break, if you will. They went and got some fresh sugar cane. They brought it up, and then they're showing me how to do it. Well, they use their teeth to peel the woody outside off, and then they bite off and chew the soft inside and suck the juice out. And I'm sitting there wanting to do it so I don't offend them, right, for not 
partaking of right. their offering. But I, I'm nervous that if I break my tooth in Malawi, I'm in big fat trouble. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, my jaw and my mouth was sore after chewing all that stuff down. But it was very good, very good, and there's a lot of sugar in. It. Yeah, neat. So, Tim, as a state apiarist in New Jersey, you get to run your travels or whatever. And I know one of the things near and dear to your heart, since you're in that region, is the um, blueberry industry. Just curious how that went this year. Oh, this year. This was probably the best weather for blueberry pollination that we've had that I can remember. I mean, it did not rain the whole time during blueberry pollination. Um, every day the colonies could work. Um, it, the bloom was late this year. Uh, I don't think we moved them in till it was about the 1st of May. It was like the last couple of days of April 1st of May, which was extremely late. But then we had three weeks, absolutely no rain. The bees worked hard every day, and they did a fine job. I mean, everybody I talked to uh, had a pretty good crop of blueberries on. That's great news, and it's really uh, great that one of our primary crops here in the Garden State did really well this year. Last year, there were some um, challenges, I recall, with some of the flowers and whatever, but it sounds like they did better this year. Yeah, I think they did a lot better this year. How about the rest of the state from... um, a beekeeping standpoint, any other, it, it was a fairly routine year. I didn't hear anything crazy going on this year. Generally, if a beekeeper had their mite levels low and they came through the winter with pretty low death loss, they made, they made honey in most parts of the state. Um, you know, there's gotta be a balance. And the way I saw it this year, Kevin, is the honey came in early, really great until about the trees stopped blooming. And usually around the end of May, early June. Then we had nothing but rain through June. And my own personal colonies in South Jersey ate back a lot of what they made early because rain, rain, rain is not good for beekeeping and not good for honey production. But then I could see in when I harvested that they they re um, they restocked the supers. Um, must have been the early part of July and of June. With, uh, with some kind of a flow down here in South Jersey. And, uh, you know, I, I've personally made more honey than I've made in probably the last 10 years this year. But it was mainly because my colonies were strong and they had low mite levels and they, they, were, they were set up right and they, and they just kept on going. Very few swarms that I have this year. Very few swarms. The rest of the state, Kevin, as I was telling you beforehand, um, there was places it was you know Bob Hughes in our in our beginner beekeeping course says honey production is location location location. Yeah, there were some locations that didn't do good, um, but there were other locations that did pretty good. And then especially up in Northwest Jersey, I was just astounded at how strong the goldenrod flow was up there. They must have had rains that where you live in Hunterdon County and I live in Atlantic County, we didn't get because there must have been enough moisture in the ground that that goldenrod was really dumping out the nectar and their bees up there really made it on it. I noticed when uh, looking last week, we had a meeting, we were up in uh, Warren County. I said this on the last um, episode, driving through the state, the goldenrod was totally different from down here from up there. And I know our racing team, we were out in New York State one weekend. We were out in Pennsylvania the weekend after. Out there, it looks spectacular. And it really is uh, such a difference. You're, 
your comment is something that we say often here is beekeeping is local. It really makes a difference where you are. And even now, um, I've had private conversations with you about my particular yard, moving my bees out of here because of the micro climate. Um, beekeepers, we, we have something. I'm going to send a message tomorrow to our association of been collecting uh, solicitations from homeowners who have properties where they want beekeepers to come in. And I'm guessing you get these uh, solicitations and or the associations down by you have them too. And they're kind of funny. Some of them are, uh, you know, just put bees here. We'd love to have them. And others come with, I have hives and I want you to, you know, take care of the hives, treat the hives, do the honey, and we'll give you some honey. And, well, by the way, you might be able to put some things. They come with all these funny stipulations. Some of them are really attractive packaging. We'll plant plants for you and things like that. And others are are a little funny, dodgy, however that goes. But at the end of the day, we send them all out, and we hope to make matches in heaven. And that's pretty much how I always work it. I generally... If someone contacts my office looking for a place to keep bees or looking for a beekeeper, I always send those people to uh, the New Jersey Beekeepers Association and let them send out a constant contact email to everybody in the association and see if anybody's interested. So I'm a little distracted because I was looking for your state apiarist report from June, and I've just found it. I think I could bring that up and show a couple of things. But there were some interesting insights. I wanted to ask one question before we go there. I got a note today from a beekeeper about HopGuard 2 being um, approved and or ready to go. And I, I believe it probably doesn't have a Section 8 here in New Jersey. It doesn't um, have section 18. That's correct. 18. And the other one is um, oxalic acid, right? People asking about that. What's the latest status on those two things? Well, in New Jersey, HopGuard is not labeled for use. Um, uh, I have not devoted the time to get a section 18 on it because um, the reports I get from other state apiaries is it's not that effective. Um, and I don't want to give beekeepers a false sense of security. Um, I was just recently doing the National Honeybee Survey with a beekeeper in Burlington County who had applied some hop guard. And um, in, in the same yard, he also applied Aprovar. And as part of the National Honeybee Survey, I collect live bee samples. And the other thing I do is I will alcohol wash bees, surplus bees from, from collecting the samples. So, I started washing these bees and he knew he had a mark, which ones had Apovar, which ones had HopGuard. Yeah. And the difference in percentage was the Apovar uh, colonies were down one and less percent infestation rate. The HopGuards were running seven, eight, nine percent infestation rate. And, you know, that just seems like a huge difference to me, Kevin. Um, my, my fear is that if I, if I, um, get this approved for use, beekeepers will use it thinking it's a great thing. And in fact, it won't do as good a job as they need to do to really uh, successfully winter. So uh, the other thought that comes to my mind is if it's that great, why don't it have a section three general use label for the whole United States of America? I don't know. Uh, One of the things that I saw, um, I'm paraphrasing, 
if you want this research, you should look at Randy Oliver's site. But I remember Randy saying he wasn't as – he was excited to try it. He did a study with it and wasn't as excited about the results from it, unfortunately. He was looking for a specific treatment profile, and he didn't find it. I also have heard anecdotally that people say it's messy to work with and other things, but maybe the new formulation is going to correct that. We know that uh, you had mentioned and others have mentioned Mitoway Quick Strips is looking to reformulate, and some of these products will get better in time, and maybe um, maybe this HopGuard 2 is the right answer. It could be. I have no personal experience with it, but it, 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 you know, you could be right. So I have the ability here to share the screen on um, your numbers of winter death loss survey. And I just wanted to touch on this because this is the time of year, Tim, where people have been told time and time again, at least from this podcast, July, August in New Jersey is the time to treat your bees. And in that context, you can't go in in October and do a last minute treat and expect that you're going to get something out of it. No, Kevin, it's interesting because uh, I did not attend EAS in, in Canada this summer, but one of my uh, beekeeper friends did, and he told me that the Bee Informed Partnership said that if you are running 6% Varroa infestation, though your colony has a 50% chance of not making it through the winter. So, um, you know, I, I've been getting alcohol washes where, where people are running 14, 15, 20% infestation rate. This is just two, a week and a half, two weeks ago, because they had not done anything to control Varroa, or they did something and thought it worked, but never checked to see if it actually worked. And now they're sitting October 1st with this terrible Varroa mite infestation. And their chances are going to be slim going into winter, I think. And one of the things we talked about in winter death loss is the fact that if you don't treat and your bees are sick right now, these are the bees that are going to overwinter. They're the ones that are switching and adding lipids and uh, changing over that are going to have to survive for months. And if they're sick to start with, they're not going to make it. What I have up on the screen here is total death loss averages. You've been taking reading since 2007. It's 30% on average, but the no treatment death loss in New Jersey statistic is 46% of hives are lost. Treated death loss is 25%. It clearly looks like in New Jersey, the treatments are necessary in order to keep your bees going. I would agree with that statement, Kevin. I mean, there's there's a there's 20% difference between those two numbers if you look in the bottom right-hand corner of that slide. You know, pe- people... People will spend money to buy bees every year. If you have to buy bees every year because your bees die every year, you're not really a beekeeper. You're really a bee buyer or a bee haver. The object of beekeeping is to successfully winter colonies of bees and make a honey crop. I I brought this notion recently that uh, there's three classes, a bee haver, a beekeeper, and a bee meddler. And one of the topics that came up in our uh, meeting last week was the fact that sometimes people start a package and they're in early and they keep wanting to check on the queen. And if you damage a leg, you damage a wing, the queen gets rejected, it gets superseded, and people blame it on the packages. And the fact of the matter is it may not be the packages. It just might be rough handling from the beekeepers. Well, Kevin, when you add 
um, heavy leather gloves and people are rough when they manipulate their frames, um, you know, hey, I seen it happen. I saw it happen two weeks ago doing a national honeybee survey. I let the beekeeper lift the third deep off of his hive and he lifted it up and it bumped and dropped down and he lifted it up again. And what did I see on top of the second deep? But the dead king queen mashed right there in front of me. Oh, that's got to be terrible. Terrible. You know, if that high Don't wasn't so high this off time the, of year, you're not going to find any. Yeah. And if it wasn't so high off the ground, um, maybe it wouldn't have got mashed. Uh, you know, there's all different kinds of things, but beekeepers rough handling certainly um, can affect colony survivability. No doubt about it. And talking to that statistic, what we're seeing here is from 2011 to 2015, your report, the people who treated in July, the average death loss was 22%, August 24%. Good numbers. Yep. September 1st through the 15th, it's 32. September 16th through the 30th, it's 40%. And it's around 40% if you try to start treating in October. So Clearly, the better strategy is July and August. No doubt about it, Kevin. You know what? I've been saying to people this year since since June when I gave this report that if you want to be a successful beekeeper, you have to be a successful mite manager. And many times people tell me, oh, well, I don't have any mites. Well, did you look for them? Well, yeah. Well, do you know what you're looking for? Well, not really. Um, you know, the ostrich mentality isn't going to help a colony of honeybees make it through the winter. The other thing that many people say to me, Kevin, is, hey, um, I got into beekeeping to save the honeybees. But in fact, when they let their colonies get infested with varroa mites and don't do anything about it, if that colony, if that colony um, dies or um, deteriorates to the point where it can't defend itself anymore and gets robbed out by other colonies, uh, the varroa mites aren't stupid. They jump on those robber bees and go right back to the other colony. So while they say they're, they're getting into beekeeping to save the bees, in fact, they're spreading parasites all over the place and causing yeah. other beekeepers a lot of problems. Yeah. You know, one of the things we were going to talk about a little bit later, but let's roll it in here right now, is mite levels in October and non-treaters. Everybody who's treated their bees, this this was a notion I picked up on a couple of years ago from Landy Simone, who talked about a discovery, and then I think she was the first one to bring awareness for me personally, but this has become a known thing is when colonies are dying, feral colonies are getting uh, mite overloads, uh, other things that are going, this is a time of year where you start to see infestations, even though you've had your mite situation in check, and you need to go in for your final inspections for the year and check your mite levels. And if need be, top them off. Yeah. It's interesting because the Bee Informed Partnership and another beekeeper friend of mine who keeps impeccable records, both of them have reported that once um, that, that the mite levels in the colonies they were monitoring in August and September were low, but their last monitor of the year, they would spike back up again. And I remember the Bee Informed Partnership staff reporting at the South Jersey uh, Christmas party last year or, or winter winter banquet that they are speculating or, or hypothesizing that the reason that happens is as colonies collapse and get robbed out, all of a sudden, boom, there's this jump 
in the number of adult varroa mites in a colony for the winter. So you're absolutely right, Kevin. Some kind of a treatment um, may be called for, maybe not. Um, it just depends on what your levels are. The, the thing that I find beekeepers don't do, a lot of beekeepers will put treatments on, Kevin, but they will not check after that treatment period is over to see what their levels are and to see if they're acceptable. I was with a beekeeper last week who they used um, you know, a treatment in, in the middle of the summer and they thought they were in pretty good shape. And I started doing my alcohol washes and they were in terrible shape, terrible shape and followed it up with Apovar, but it was Apovar last week. Um, you know, yeah, how good is it going be... to do? I don't know. So, so what kind of treatments do you do this year, Tim? Are you going to follow a full package, full dose? Uh, some people would be inclined to do a partial treatment. And this time of year where it's 50 degrees at night and maybe 60 degrees during the day, how effective can some of these treatments be? Well, I would say that uh, the thymol treatment, probably not that accept, not, not that um, um, effective. But the, the mite-away quick-strip treatment would probably still be effective at dropping down adults uh, because it's not going to vaporize too quickly. Um, the Apovar treatment is not temperature dependent, so that's not a problem, but it's got to be put in the hive where bees can walk on it. I, I've noticed beekeepers putting them towards the outside of the hive um, and towards the front and back of the box instead of in where the main cluster is. Well, you know what? That product will not work if honeybees are not walking across it and getting it on their fur. So it needs to be in, as the colony shrinks and tightens up into a cluster, it needs to be where that clustering takes place. You know, one of the things I know about that um, concept, too, is the picture shows that it's supposed to be in the front, in the back, uh, two in or whatever. But to your point, if there's no brood there, even though the picture shows that, use your common sense and put it in where the brood chamber is. That's correct. And it's not brood, it's frames of bees. Okay. It's bees more important than brood because if the varroa mites are in the brood, that's one thing. But once the brood starts to go lower, it's on bees. And that strip has to be in contact with bees to damage or to, to take care of the varroa. Yeah. Presumably the bees are going to be where the brood is, but um, it's a fair point. I'm showing this screen. I think I'm showing the screen, yeah. Yes. Uh, um, you brought up a really good point is these Apovar strips, they have this little punch out, and they're supposed to uh, hold the plastic in place, but a lot of times that little punch doesn't do the job and it falls right through. You're recommending that they put a toothpick or some other item through the holes to, to make sure that it stays in place. Yeah, I like a nail because then it hangs straight down between the frames and uh, or or the toothpick straight down between the frames and a lot of times if if you use the tab you'll see the 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 strip twists to the side of the frame and then they won't use the comb underneath that strip so this way it lets it lets them better utilize their comb and it hangs straight down between the frames and the bees can get around each side of it much better i think yeah that makes sense yep Interesting tip there, Tim, on that. I got to make sure. Actually, I wasn't showing that, was I? Yes. Well, I I could see it. Okay, but I wasn't. Let me let me put it back up here, and uh, that way folks can see what I was talking about. I you had it, but I did not have it showing. So what we're talking about? Let me bring it up full screen. 
So now what you see here is there's a toothpick or a nail or something sticking through, and this little tab will fall through for Apivar. This has turned out to be a pretty effective product, Tim, and a lot of people really like it. It's funny that uh, something that resembles a dog collar has become the winner in the hearts and minds of people who are treating for mites. Yeah. Okay, so um, Kevin, I had a couple here, other. Kevin, here's one of the reasons. Let me just add to that. Sure. What you said is very true. One of the reasons I like it is because it's not dependent upon environmental conditions to work. Uh, the same gentleman I was at his apiary last week, I looked at one hive and it had 15 mites per 100 bees. The next hive that he treated exactly the same way with one of the treatments that forms a vapor had, you know, four mites per 100 bees, 4% infestation, which isn't that bad. Um, so you see that there's a huge disparity between the two hives and the same treatment applied to both of them. This kind of equals all that out because it's in for a long period of time and it's actively uh, killing Varroa for 42 to 52 days, where, you know, whatever that exact time period is. Um, and, and it allows you over time to clean them up as opposed to this vapor that kind of gases out the hive, causes queen problems, supersedures, different things like that all come along with those, those vaporizing products. I'm curious, Tim, how many people didn't bother to take those things out after they were done, right? The vaporizing products or the Apivar? No, the Apivar strips. Well, I, I hope people are following the rules and take that stuff out. Yeah, me too. So I had a question for you. I wanted to go through. Um, baking a cake is a recipe, right? And you and I could go to our separate kitchens and bake a cake and they would come out differently. A lot of times that's the truth. So the cake I want to talk about is baking a split in the spring. Oh. What is the recipe for, you know, one of the things I know strategically, haven't had a good luck in this recently, but trying to figure out the right recipe is your bees come out of winter. You have a relatively strong box, but one of the objectives is, you want to get a big population so you can make your split early so that that split can function while the nectar flow is going and not try to ramp it up in the time when the dearth rolls in in July. So what is a strategy, Tim, for one, obviously you want to do your mite treatments or whatever. Beekeeping for January, February starts from the year prior, right? But let's pretend that we've done all the right things and our colony is now coming out of spring. What's the procedure? Do you, do you feed to stimulate the bees and get more population? How would you approach this? And we want to be able to encourage our beekeepers to do walkaway splits, real splits, make nukes. But we need the right recipe in the spring to explain to people how to go about this. Well, I will explain to you exactly what I do with my own bees, okay? I come through either probably a two-story hive, two deeps. What I like to do is start feeding them thin syrup as early as I think they'll break cluster and take it. I use hive-top feeders, Kevin, okay? So I got a hive-top feeder on top. Now, you put a hive-top feeder on top and the cluster is not up there, is that going to do any good? No, 
because the bees are not going to walk across four inches of a honey cap to get to thin syrup. They're not going to do it. So if really I want the bees towards the top of the box, I want to put that hive top feeder on and I want to feed them thin syrup. Okay. In my experience, the hive that's only two frames or three frames of bees, you can feed them to your blue in the face is not going to make much difference. Yeah. But if you have a strong hive that's covering most of the top of that box, that's the one that you're going to want to split. That's the one that you're going to want to jazz up with feed and get the queen stimulated. Okay. I'll put feed on them two or three times. I want them brooding up two boxes, maybe three boxes. Okay. Now. What, what's the volume of syrup you're putting on there, Tim? Oh, I might put two or three gallons at a time on that feeder. That hive top feeder allows, you know, 500,000 bees, 1,500 bees to drink at any one time. Mm-hmm. And it, it fools the colony into thinking they're on a nectar flow. That, in turn, stimulates the queen to lay more eggs. Okay? Okay. So, if you're going to make a split, I prefer to make a split and give the bees a queen. So I'm kind of trapped into when I can get queens. It's not easy to get them early in the year. So what I will do is if I see a colony getting a double deep, getting so full that I'm worried it's going to want to start making swarm cells before my queens come, I'll give them another deep. Now I've got them running into another deep and let them just brood three deeps up if I have to. What's the temperature when you're doing this? What's a time frame? Well, as you said, they've broken cluster and they've broken cluster April coming into May. They've broken cluster there. There's pollen coming in. Um, They're getting fly days. That's they can fly. Um, Maples have probably bloomed by now, but this is before dandelion bloom. Okay. That I'm feeding them like this. Mm -hmm. Now, um, this is how this is what I, what I consider a split. A split is when you split a two-story colony in half. Okay, so yeah, when I when I know they're they're getting strong enough, and I know that by looking in the hive, I go through and I like to take and find the queen, put her in the bottom deep, then I divide the brood up between both deeps. Then I put a queen excluder on top of the bottom deep where the queen is trapped. And I put the rest of the brood on top of the queen excluder and put the lid and the feeder back on, the feeder and the lid back on. Now I know that I market queens in the bottom. I know that this colony is strong enough for me to split because I've got seven or eight frames of bees and brood in each of those deep boxes. And then what I do, Kevin, is if I if I do that today and I know that I'm going to come and pull the top box off tonight. I won't put the feeder back on, but I will come back at dusk, pull the top box off, put it on a bottom board on my truck, and take it to another bee yard. Okay. Making a split, in my experience, in the same yard that your bees are in is a recipe for disaster. It generally does not work that well. It, I, I always move them to, the, to another bee yard a mile or two away at least. Well, why do you think that's the case, Tim? Why, why do you have to transport them when there's no queen in there, they have young eggs, and they can make their own colony? What would be the difference in distance? Because you'll lose the field force when you do that. There will be foraging bees up in that second box. 
And if I split them off and left them in the same bee yard, all those adult bees that had been foraging or had been flying at one time would drift back to the parent colony. And there may not even be enough bees to cover the brood in that split if you leave it in the same yard. If you do it the way I said, by putting it over a queen excluder and leaving it there for four or five or six hours, the adult bees will equalize between the two boxes. And then you move them out at night. You're going to keep those that, that synergy of bees, that, that um, uh, nucleus of bees ready to go to town. And what are they going to do at the new location? They are going to um, start looking around for food. And pretty soon you'll have a field force on that split off. That's really the way to do it. And then that one, the queenless half will get the new queen. I know that. I'll do that the next day. Give them a new queen in a cage. So there's where my recipe went wrong, right? Because I made my splits, kept it in the same yard. And I agree with you. What happened is, and I did it as early as possible. And then unfortunately, it got really cold, right? All the foragers flew back into the other hive. And they didn't, they covered the brood, but the, they did not raise a queen or do real well there. And it just all collapsed and went away. So I'm going to move my bees this year at your recommendation. What if you don't have a second yard? What are you going to do there? Kevin, here's the other way you could do it if you don't have a, another yard. You could put the queen um, in, in, you could move the queen off of the location with three or four frames of bees, three or four frames of food, okay? And leave the queenless half on the parent location because which hive will build, will make a better queen from scratch? One that has a field force and incoming food or one that lost all their field yep. bees and have no incoming food? You follow what I'm saying? I, I do, yep. It's still not the best way, Kevin, as far as I'm concerned, but – but if you did not have another bee yard, you could try it that way. And you would probably be more successful letting the parent colony raise the new queen and move the old queen off into a nuke box to the side and save her as reserve or build her up into a, into a, a, a deep body at, at some time. That's an age-old question. Do you take the queen when you make the split or not? And in your case, what you're saying is, if you're doing it in the same yard, you don't have an option to move to another location in this equalization thing that you just talked about, then take the old queen and put her over there and the foragers will all go back to the mother colony and they'll be better equipped to build a new queen and or you give it a queen and it'll recover quicker because it's the mother hive nucleus and it should have a better workforce. Interesting point. Correct. And you know what? In my mind, a split is splitting a strong colony in two so both halves are equally strong. And the only way to do that, to split them in half and keep them both of the same strength, is to move the split to another location. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That's the only way to do it. Yeah, your point is you can't keep the foragers from flying back, but if they're in some other location, there's no way they're going to return to the mother hive. So therefore they're going to stay and become part of that colony. Correct. What if you want to make, um, some people are just pulling, they let their hives get to the point where they have queen cells capped, and they're pulling them out and putting them in uh, queen castles and supporting them with bees. Same scenario, you want to move them out to another location, right, so that no, the food force doesn't fly back? If you're putting them on top of a strong colony, 
um, you could leave them in the same yard because a queen castle is designed so that heat and humidity comes off of the off of the off of the strong colony to nurse those 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 little f- two frame uh, nukes, if you will, to nurse right. them along. Um, and and you can be very successful doing it that way. Um, whatever you do on the parent location, if you're letting a colony build up and develop just a bunch of queen cells, you only want to leave a few cells and a couple frames on that parent location. Otherwise, your bees are going to be swarming and be in all the bushes. If you take away the bees, they're not going to swarm, even if there's 10 queen cells in there. Um, If you take away the queen cells and the frames, um, they're not going to swarm. Okay, you got to take away one of them in order to control swarming. And that's becoming more and more of an issue swarming, especially in urban settings and suburban settings where neighbors are not as happy about a swarm landing in their backyard as the beekeeper is about going and catching it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that they are not. And with the density of uh, beekeepers in New Jersey going up, over the last number of years, it's probably more and more prevalent. So now you've made your split, your colony's off to a good start. You get to the end of the nectar flow. Are you still feeding top feeder, and how much are you feeding? Are you doing varroa treatments? What are your thoughts, sir? Carry the through to get to the fall nectar flow. Let's run that run. Well, once I've made my splits, I watch those bees grow. Um, I put my honey supers on to make the honey crop. The end of the nectar flow, you want to what? Harvest your honey. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you want to monitor that colony's condition. If you're in an area that goes into a total dearth, like in the pine lands, then you better be on top of things. And quite frankly, I'm a strong believer if you're in a poor nectar area in July and August of strategically feeding them maybe a gallon of syrup a week just to keep the brood nest um, strong and juicy. People that don't do that in places where there aren't is no summer nectar, this is what tends to happen. The colony shrinks back. Um, you see very little eggs and larvae. You'll see pupa. You'll even sometimes see cannibalized brood. There'll be absolutely no honey crown inside the brood nest at the mm-hmm. top of the frames. And then when the fall goldenrod flow starts, um, all the colony does is rebuild what it lost for the last two months. Um, beekeepers that do a little strategic feeding, keep the brood nest from shrinking, keep the queen stimulated, keep new bees coming. And when that fall nectar flow starts, goldenrod, boom, they are poised to capitalize on what their bees can make, as opposed to those that just have shrunk back and now all of a sudden try to get strong enough to make it through the winter on that nectar flow. Yeah. Charlie Toth was talking about that same dynamic, and he was talking about just a quart feeder with a single hole so that they could just take enough to keep the bees going but not store sugar syrup in the hive. You don't want to feed them gallons and gallons was his uh, surmise. You never want them to store sugar solution in the hive. You just want to have them enough to eat to keep uh, operational, basically, was his point. And I read in a book, I don't remember the title, I'm looking over at my bookshelf where the person talked about during this period, all they did was take like a ball jar cap, put sugar in it and slide it in every day at the entrance. I'm not at my hives every day, but that was their suggestion is that's the way they would feed. Um, 
to your point, I like the idea of the notion of just keeping it juicy, right? And that there is moisture for the bees to work with, especially during this summer. There was no rain, no whatever. Uh, having it right there at their disposal is a, a, a pretty welcome uh, thing for them, I'm sure. Absolutely, Kevin. Absolutely. It makes all the difference in the world. So when you make your split, let them raise their own queen or buy a queen and put it in there. Your thoughts on that? Well, for me personally, I want to have hives that produce. So I prefer to um, to buy a queen and put it in there so that they, I don't lose 30 days. If you let them raise their own queen, you're probably going to lose 30 days in that in that whole process. And then is the weather good enough for that queen to get mated? That's when it starts going against you if you make your split too early in the year because if the weather's not good when that virgin comes out to mate, now you've you've wasted 30 days and you've got a queen that's not mated laying drones and now you've got to recombine and your split was for naught. At least if you have a queen that's been bred, you put her in there and generally speaking, she's going to go. Hence the suggestion of queen banks, right? To have your own local stock in your yard, ready to go when you need it. Um, one supports the other, nukes, queen banks, full-size colonies making splits. Um, on an aside, I mentioned this recently. Um, Stan Wazitowski was talking about the limitations of bringing queens from Canada down to our area one of the challenges beekeepers have is, is a queen from Georgia any good? Or do you buy them from local New Jersey? And if you can get them from Canada, well, they can survive the winter pretty well, apparently. You hear about this? Have any thoughts on that idea? That that I really don't. I, I like what we um, – I like what, what uh, David Tarpey told us in June. And I have every intention of doing it. With, my, with the queens I purchase next year. You know, I usually purchase some 20 or 25 at a time, and one out of every 25, lot of 25, is going to go to David Tarpey because for 20 bucks, he'll kill her. He'll count the amount of sperm and tell me whether it's viable sperm or dead sperm in her spermatheca. He'll yeah. be able to tell me how many drones she mated with, and it will be a way for me to check up on my queen producer. And I don't care if it's a New Jersey queen producer, a Canadian queen producer, or a Georgian or Florida queen producer, or a California queen producer. I think it's a good thing to do. And for a little bit of money, you'll get you'll get a good feel for how well that queen breeder is doing at their at their at their job. You have a lot at stake being a commercial beekeeper, right? You're running a, a business on the side for yourself and. Uh... You have a lot of colonies and you want to make sure that your operation is going to stay up and running. So that's a good investment. Absolutely. I, I think it is. And I think it also supports David Tarpey's research. And he's one of the guys that's doing some good stuff for beekeepers, it seems like to me. I have to agree. So um, we were having this conversation. I wanted to ask you, did you see the video from Landy Simone about uh, feeding? I did. I saw the comments immediately in YouTube. <laughs> it always entertains me to watch how the trolls come out. Uh, Master Beekeeper, how could she do this or whatever? But, you know, I, I my initial impression was, one, cool. I get to see how Landy does it. And I tried that type of approach. Didn't work for me. 
I know from Landy's description what I did wrong. So I learned from it, right? I didn't put it far enough away. The other thing was her physical approach. She learned it. It works for her. And you don't have to invent it from scratch. It, it made a lot of sense to me that she would share this. And it works in her operation. And then people come in and go, this will never work. It's a wrong thing. You'll spread disease, pestilence, all this other stuff. She's using it, and she has been using it. Now she's sharing her secret recipe, so to speak. So it's funny how people will go, ah, that'll never work. She's using it. <laughs> well, Kevin, most commercial beekeepers, anyone's been to Harvey's Honey, they feed on an open feeder. You couldn't have four or 500 colonies in one bee yard and work those bees without them having something to work. Otherwise, they'd be robbing from each other all the time. So... Um, you know, and that's how they feed in an open type feeder. Other commercial beekeepers do the same thing with 55 gallon drums. Um, they put straw in them, they put sticks in them, and they'll open feed because you know what? It's a fast, labor effective way to get feed into your bees. The downside is if you are in a neighborhood with 20 other beekeepers, now you're feeding everybody's bees. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And that can become very cost uh, prohibitive for doing it that way. Um, is there a potential to spread disease? There, there is a potential to spread disease, but sugar syrup is less likely to do it than people putting their wet supers out on their back porch if they had American foul brood and now the whole neighborhood has it because they robbed out American foul brood infected honey. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, you've got, it, it, you said it best, Kevin, you've got to figure out what works for your operation. If you're in the middle of Jersey city, I wouldn't recommend you put out four or five five-gallon pails of syrup in your backyard because you're going to scare all your neighbors as the bees come and, and hit that I mean, because it becomes a feeding frenzy. So in an urban setting or a suburban setting, not that great. In a rural setting, you could get away with it. I could tell you that when I tried it, there wasn't a lot of information out there. There just isn't. So I tried something, and – if you want to know the mistake, I said I put it too close. And not only did I feed my bees, but I fed every yellow jacket, every European hornet, whatever, and I brought them into my hive apiary, right? So now I know better. Put them away. I didn't have a problem feeding the bees, but I ended up feeding other critters. I've had this problem, too, with the water buckets that I put out. The, uh, the it, it looked like the raccoons were washing their food in my water buckets and stuff. And I liked what you said earlier about the ants. I've seen some ant problems in my apiary and the fact that they're hanging their hives in Africa to keep them from the ants. So there's always a way if you think uh, how, how to solve some of these things. And um, I, I was just one for one, really thankful that somebody took the time to film her and post that up and make it available for everybody. And I say kudos to them for doing it. Absolutely. So speaking of feeding this time of year, I've received a couple of questions and answered a couple of questions. There was something actually posted yesterday on somebody's Facebook page about the ratio of syrup feeding to a bee. And you had said to me you wanted to have a conversation about the perils of switching and when one-to-one, two-to-one ratio. So I wanted to give you a forum to go ahead and talk about that. Well, Kevin, my opinion is feed thin syrup. It stimulates brood production. The bees will, will, uh, will reduce it down and cap it. Um, it's easier to mix for the beekeeper. 
And oftentimes people's lives get in the way of their beekeeping. So I would hate for a beekeeper to say, oh, I haven't had time to mix two to one. Um, so I didn't feed anything. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, two to one, you almost have to cook on the stove to get it hot enough and get it into solution. Um, so it takes more effort on the part of the beekeeper. Um, quite frankly, it's more important that the bees get it if they need it, because every day that goes by is one day closer to the point where they won't take it anymore. Okay. So my, my point is get it on now. You really should have been getting it on probably back in the beginning of September. Um, if you're in an area that doesn't have a fall flow or your bees did not get a fall flow, but starting now is better than not starting at all. And starting with one to one is better than wait until next weekend to mix two to one. You see what I'm saying? Get it on them, whatever you're going to do. Yeah. And do you think that, uh, let's go through a couple of scenarios in this aspect. Um, I started a hive. I didn't do it right. Something didn't go well. Uh, one of the things I said to you off air before we started something that Carly did and, and it rung a bell for me mistake that I made. I started a new package hive this year. And in my ambition of not knowing whether I could get back to that yard to put a second box on, I put a second box on early. I got lambasted on YouTube, by the way, <laughs> about that. People are brutal sometimes, Tim. But anyway, <laughs> Carly brought up the point that you need to let them in a box and have heat because they need heat in order to build wax, right? This is a time of year where cool at night. It's 50 degrees outside right now. It might go down into the 40s by the evening. It's not getting above 60 as a normal temperature. When do you stop feeding on the top because that liquid doesn't heat up enough? And what do you do for beekeepers whose hives just literally, they don't have the mass, they don't have the wax, they don't, I mean, sometimes they're just out of luck. That's life, right? But you have any guidance for those people that are in dire straits? Because I received one of those calls this week, too, of somebody who's, it just didn't go well all year, and they're trying to make that last run to it. And um, do, do you think there's any notion about heating the sugar solution before you put it on the hive? I think there is. For a period of time, it might be good enough for them to be able to pull it down. Uh, generally, Kevin, if they're queen right and they're hungry, they'll take syrup. Um, I would say um, if, if the colony is not big enough, if they're not occupying the space and you can knock them down into a single deep, that would be a better way to go and feed them right on top of where they're at. You may get them to take that syrup. Um, um, it, I see oftentimes people who have two deeps. The bees are in the bottom. The deep, the second deep is nothing but foundation this time of year. And the feeder is up top. You know, they're never going to cross nine inches of foundation right. to get to a feeder full of syrup on the, with the weather conditions we've had for the last three or four days. It's not going to happen. You need to get rid of that foundation and get the feeder down on top of the bees and make them as fat as they can where they are and hope for the best. That, that's what I would do. I said that same thing, gave that same advice to somebody this week and said, you know, feed them, feed them, feed them as much as you can. And look, people overwintered nukes, five frame nukes. So if you can get them to fill out a single box, you have a shot at overwintering. Tuck them next to another hive, 
wrap them in tar paper or do something to help them stay warm. Maybe put an insulated cover, get creative and see what you could do. It's not a lost cause, uh, you know, or combine them with another hive at this point. You, you might have to sacrifice a queen, but at least the whole colony doesn't go away. Um, but, you know, who knows? It, it's October. There have been times, Tim, through October where you get 70, 80 degree days all the way through. I've had um, beekeeping seasons where we've even had warmth through to the two Thanksgiving. So don't give up faith right now. Just do what you can to get feed in there and build colonies of bees and strategically think about overwintering a single or new tuck them in next to something else. That that's the guidance that I tried to give. And Kevin, that's, that, that's all good. Um, here's the thing that, that sometimes beekeepers don't do. Oh, Jesus just flew out of my mind. I, I had something I wanted to tell you about that. Maybe it'll fly back. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, those are all fine things to do. Get the feed on them. It's got to be where they can get it. And oh, generally, I, I like to be done feeding around the middle of October in my yeah. woods. That's what I generally like to be done. But you know what? There's times, like you said, you have warm weather up till Thanksgiving. There's been years we had warm weather right up to Christmas. Yes. You better, you better be ready to hit them a little bit more because they are not tightly clustered and they'll, they're eating feed if they're not clustered up. Believe me, they're eating, they're eating food reserves if they are not in a tight cluster. So um, hitting them a little bit as you go, nothing wrong with that. So in the context of feeding sugar solution, now I'm going to go, we have a lot of people who, who follow that do not believe in treatments. They do not believe in feeding sugar solutions and things like that, right? Can you feed them too much? And are they are, are they good to store sugar solution honey in to get them to spring? Or, or is this just a, a, a ridiculously bad thing to do? Can you overfeed them to the point where you're going to shut the queen down, crowd out uh, at this time of year? Uh, what are What are some of the things about you know, you said before you could put gallons on the hive, and if you're putting gallons on, maybe that's too much, right? How does if sometimes to people just don't look in their box, so they don't know what's going on. They're just pouring gallons, and and that's not the right thing for them to do. What's a safe middle of the road thing to do if a new beekeeper just can't figure out the path? Well. A safe thing to do is if that second deep is, is pretty much full of honey and the bees are pushed down into the bottom box, that, that colony is ready for winter. If you can lift that second deep and it's not, you don't grunt when you do it, it's probably not heavy enough for winter just yet. Okay. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of not feeding bees to keep them alive. Um, just because I don't believe in feeding bees. Do you follow what I'm saying? I do. Uh, I'm a beekeeper. I want to keep my bees alive. And if they didn't make enough honey and they need some help to get through the next year, I'm going to give them the help. That, that's, that's my particular opinion about that. Um, so uh, the other issue I find with beekeepers and feeding is a beekeeper, a newer beekeeper will use uh, a Boardman feeder. Yeah with 24 microscopic holes punched in it in a quart mason jar and think that that is going to fatten a colony for the winter. 
all that little feeder is going to do is keep them the status quo, like you mentioned earlier. Um, it is not going to fatten a colony for winter. To fatten a colony for winter, you need a thousand bees drinking at any one time, and you need to not let the feeder run empty, Kevin. That's what you need to fatten a colony for the winter. I, I mean, ideally, you don't feed, right? Ideally, they get through the spring nectar flow. I mean, this is really what we want people to do. We want them to get through the spring nectar flow, load up with boxes of honey, and then have as much honey as they need and pollen to get through without having to feed them, right? What we're talking about, and there are areas in New Jersey that just don't have sustainable plant materials to keep a colony going all year long without some supplemental feeding, depending on the year, right? There are, there's a lot of places that people could get by if they move their bees to a good location or they put them in a field where somebody planted alfalfa for them or things like that. But, you know, a lot of people want the bees in their backyard. They don't want to drive 20 minutes to a farm field um, or, or some sort of place where they can have it. So there's there's so many different variations on uh, nutrition and, and uh, available forage for beekeepers in New Jersey, just from the sheer diversity of Jersey City versus Hunter and County, where I am, you know, you know what it looks like. It's farm country, right? And everything in between. Yeah. Kevin, my friend Bob Hughes lives in central Jersey, out near Trenton, and he lives in beekeeping nirvana. I mean, he hardly ever has to feed a drop of anything. And those bees are fat and heavy going into winter. They got plenty of feed. They make a honey crop year after year after year. Okay. But I don't live in a place like that. And apart from supplemental feeding, my bees do not have a great chance of going through the winter. Here's the other issue. And I, I, I faced this 15 years ago because I didn't want to feed either. Feeding costs money. It costs time. It's a mess if you're not set up to do it. It's a big fat pain. Okay. Yeah. I agree with all those statements. And this is what used to happen to me. I would leave plenty of honey, but there was no flow in July, August, September, October where I lived. So I would have a small cluster of old bees going into winter with plenty of honey. And they would dwindle down and die because there was not enough young bees that had the right amount of fats in their body to live through till next spring. So I had plenty of honey on them that was very expensive, worth a lot of money, but I did not have the volume of bees. So for me, or in my area, feeding one-to-one -one syrup stimulates brood production, which in turn stimulates young nurse bees that are gonna take my colonies through the winter and you need a large population of young bees, you need low mite loads, and you need adequate food resources to be successful at wintering bees. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Yeah. Are, are you an advocate of pulling honey off and giving it back later? And some people say honey is emergency food for bees. That, um, Kevin, there, there, I have instances where I have, may have a colony die. I have instances where I, some bee yards I'll have deeps over the inner cover. Um, on good hives that are there just in case I need to give them, give a colony quickly, a couple frames of honey to get them through that hump in March before they can really start flying. And I've saved plenty of colonies by doing that from starvation, by taking a frame of honey and pushing it right up next to the cluster, 
scrape some cappings off so the bees can smell it, boom, they'll get right on it. As long as they can touch it, the whole cluster will get food because those bees will share that food with their sisters. And I know um, I saw, again, you're a commercial operator. In the beginning of the year, you had half barrels or barrels with pollen in it. Supplement, do people need to feed pollen at this time of year? No. Or any time this year? Generally speaking, um, I would say this year, absolutely not. Um, Heather Matilla came and spoke at one of our state beekeepers meetings. She was a researcher from Cornell University, um, worked with uh, Dr. Seeley, and um, she did a study on that and, and determined that supplemental pollen feeding this time of year, not really effective. What when, when you saw me feeding powdered pollen, pollen substitute, was in um, late February, early March, because the bees are out hitting everybody's bird feeder. They're hitting the chicken mash, looking for something that they can roll around in and bring back to the hive as a pollen-like plant or like-like food because mm-hmm. there's no natural pollen coming in just then. And what that does is most of the time, if my colonies are strong, I want to split them anyway. So this is another way to stimulate brood production earlier than the natural flowers are blooming so that I'll be able to split colonies earlier than I would normally be able to split them. I saw that, uh, in fact, I think I probably shared it somewhere on our Facebook page or whatever. And then I was thinking to myself, everybody in New Jersey next morning just going to put out a barrel with stuff in it because they saw Tim did it. <laughs> Is that, should they? Well, <laughs> it, it, if, if they're not planning on splitting their colonies, there's no reason to do that, Kevin. Or if you don't have a lot of colonies in one bee yard, See, sometimes commercial guys do it. One of my one of my commercial beekeepers, the bees were going to the neighboring dairy farm and stealing out of the commodity shed soybean concentrate that costs four hundred dollars a ton, and taking it back. So the beekeeper puts out pollen substitute to keep the bees out of the neighbor's commodity shed. You see what I'm saying? So okay. it's it's a way to, to 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 manipulate their behavior so they're not a nuisance to people around them. Same premise of provide them with water, right? That, that Absolutely. Absolutely. So they're not in the neighbor's pool that time of year. And I've had I've had neighbors of beekeepers raising a fit because the honeybees were at their bird feeder and the birds that they want to see couldn't get in there and eat because there were so many honeybees around the bird feeder rolling around in the bird seed dust. That's interesting. I've never, never seen or heard that. I, I have seen them at my... Even though um, they suggest when you have a hummingbird feeder, you cut the water differently so that it's not as sweet. But I still see when bees are desperate, they will take that no matter what. Yeah, definitely. So right now what I'm seeing is a dark yellow-orange go in. It's got to be goldenrod. Would you guess that's the pollen I'm seeing? It could, could well be. I've seen a lot of dark orange and yellow recently. So, Tim, I have over here behind me uh, the calendar for October. There's a bunch of different tips for fall. It's time, and I had covered some of that. But one of the things that becomes prevalent for you, I guess, is making sure people are warned that they get their bear fences up this time of year. They should have done it already, but uh, better late than never, right? Last Monday, Kevin, or Tuesday, I was driving through Sparta, and saw about a 150, 200 pounder 
not 100 yards from my truck out in an open field, just kind of moseying around. And this was in broad daylight and, you know, one o'clock in the afternoon. So you better have your fences geared up because we are coming to the point where generally I get I get most of the bear calls in in that first and second, first two to three weeks of October. So we're right there. So that's a very timely, timely tip. Not only that, they need to make sure, as it says, that they have to be baited with fresh bait and and make sure your chargers are charged high, right? Because people turn their fences off or who knows why. But uh, this is a time of year you want to be feeding. They need to have a snout full of it right now. That's correct. Usually once they get to November, don't have much problems after that. But it's very important to train the bears in your neighborhood not to mess with your fence. Best way to do that is bacon on the wire so they lick it and get zapped on their tongue. I don't know what that feels like, Kevin, but I can't imagine it's real pleasant. I can't either. <laughs> so just running through these things as a general public service announcement. We did this last week, um, but we'll do it again. It's 60 to 80 pounds, according to the Merit Guide of Food you want to have. And to your point, that top box should be heavy. This is where you want to make sure your bees are in full sun so they can operate as long as possible this time of year. Mouse guards, uh, that's a f- you know, an obvious thing. This is the time of year where mice, we found a um, dead, the, the cats brought a dead mouse and a dead rat to the doorstep this morning. So they're, they're on the move and that's when the cats tend to find them. Our cats are somewhat fat and lazy. <laughs> if they can catch a mouse, you know that they're operating around. And, uh, you know, this is a time of year too where everything uh, gets hungry. Skunks is another thing you have on here. Um, hopefully everybody was worried about the hurricane this year and put, uh, some sort of weight or strap their hives. It, it's just a good time of year to go back and do that. I know I had mentioned this, uh, in the last episode, Tim, how many times you go out, you work your hive, you do whatever, and you don't put the strap back or you forget to just put the rock or, or brick back up on top. And then. You're sitting at work for me, and I'm I'm looking out, and I see this storm blow through in the wind, and I'm like, wow, hopefully they propolis it down real well. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, that that's definitely important. Uh, the rock or, or some way to keep that lid on is important. And the other thing, Kevin, you didn't mention is giving them an upper entrance, putting uh, some sort of a small stone or a block of wood on top of the inner cover under the outer cover so that if that front entrance gets plugged by floodwaters or snow or ice that those bees still have a way to breathe and have a way to exit if they need to very very important as well as venting moisture it, one of the things i noticed tim is i have um I, i'm trying to i think they're kelly feeders i don't remember the brand but i have a kelly feeder i have a inner cover i have the outer cover sitting on it and the bees are getting in somehow and I'm still at a loss as to how that happens. I have it shoved close, and, and I always sometimes still find bees inside that feeder. It frustrates me, but uh, any problems? When When is the time when they – one of the challenges you have for fall feeding is that if they're bringing nectar or sugar solution down and they don't have time to dry it before a sudden cold snap comes in. So there has to be that time where you go, I, I don't care what the weatherman says, I'm going to stop feeding. 
Well, that's why for me, I like to be done by the middle of October because then it gives them enough time, generally speaking, till the first or second week in November to process it down, get the moisture thin, um, cap some of it. And uh, then that stuff that's not capped will probably be the first stuff used, Kevin. Yeah, it makes sense. So we're we're through the topic thing that I had. We could do good of the order, anything you want to talk about. One of the things I want to do is a plug for the October 31st meeting for the state. Um, yeah. That looks like a good – we're not hosting. Um, it was supposed to be in our sending area. Now it got moved to the deaconry, as you probably know. But we're not hosting an October meeting. I'm literally – encouraging all of our members to go up there because I think the topic matters are so germane and beekeepers need to get in and get to that meeting. Absolutely. I, I think it's very, I think it's going to be a good meeting. It's not one that I've ever seen that type of a meeting put together before. Grant Stiles is going to talk about from a, from a producer standpoint, what it takes to put together a nuke, how much effort it takes and some of the pitfalls of it. Uh, there's going to be a gentleman from Georgia, I think, who is a, package B producer going to talk about what they face um, as selling packages is, is pretty much their, their sole business. And then I'm going to talk about some issues, some problems that beekeepers cause to themselves as a result of getting packages or nukes and some things to ask the person that's selling them to you. So you understand up front, you know, what, what your expectations are and what his expectations are. So there's not a, a communication issue because I've seen that and, and heard about it from beekeepers many, many times. A lot of times people are just so excited to become beekeepers that it's like they're in candy land and, yeah. and the whole world's made of lollipops and chocolate icing. You know what I mean? And you've got to be smart. you got to ask the right questions so you know what you're doing. I think you're right. And on stage in June, you said it's a thinking person's game, right? You're not just going to put them in a box and then you're not going to come out like the flow hive, <laughs> start harvesting honey in July. And you're not going to, you know, put a nice little tar paper on them in October and put them to bed. You have to be in and, and take care of your management. And uh, I'm really excited about the package producer, queen producer guy coming up because I think one, conceptually, I've never been in that guy's operation. I have no idea what he what he does for a day in the life, right? Right. Um, I, I think there's very few people, even you. I don't know if you've ever been down literally to the Georgia operation and see this guy run. So just having a doggy-ducky-horsey description of what he does and how he does it. We always hear the pressures of beekeepers wanting uh, packages early. And they must have figured out some sort of solution for that. So I'm curious to hear what he has to say about that dynamic. Yeah. Um, I've seen videos of people who shake packages in and for queens. And, you know, some of the conversation about uh, I'm, I'm raising a queen. And I have out yards for drones and all these other things to try and control my stock. Right. So maybe he'll talk a little bit about that because he has to be able to his living is predicated on the packages that he sends, right? Um, one of the things we've talked about is the package on the back of the trailer gets too much wind on the drive up to New Jersey. So I know that they're trying to address those type of things. I'm interested if he's going to say something about how they get transported. So there's a ton of questions you could ask a guy like that. And so many things that you wouldn't even think to ask that he's going to cover that I think that is a must-do meeting. I would agree with you, Kevin. 
And, you know, the other thing, it, it ties in nicely with when David Tarpey was here, because one of the things I learned from him, I was always worried about keeping packages cool. But he told he told us at that meeting that if a colony or if a queen bee gets too cold, the sperm in her spermatheca die and she's yep. going to fail early in her life. So it's probably better to have those packages on the warm side than on the cool side, to be honest with you. Yeah, and I thought about that as the package I picked up from um, my producer. I remember when he was saying that on stage, I'm thinking to myself, I remember where the package was in relation to the way the trailer was set up. It wasn't the last, it wasn't one hanging off the back tailgate. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I do remember immediately you get that like, oh, <laughs> the guy who got there early and took those first packages because they were the easiest ones to reach for the back of the trailer. Hmm. Wonder what happened to that guy. Yeah, might, not have, might not have been too successful. Yeah. Maybe you want to drag your feet and get the ones in the middle of the, of the hump there. So, well, Tim, uh, but, see, um, Kevin, but, but Kevin, the other issue is that is not the producer, the guy who produced the package problem as much as it is the transport slash seller of the packages problem. That's where they're handling or even the beekeepers handling. Suppose they let them get too cold coming home or threw them in the back of their pickup truck when it was 30 degrees out and drove back home. Um, you know, left them out in a cold barn overnight and didn't bring them in the house. There's all different things like that that can affect the, the viability and longevity of the queen. My impression is that these guys deal with the phone calls, right, that come in. So they'll be able to tell you why bees don't work because they have to answer the questions for people who call. So I'm interested to hear about those type of horror stories from this guy and his impressions about beekeepers. And you're right. Uh, I, I think um, back to when I first started and how much of a novice I was and what I knew, I was just – scared to death about getting stung let alone you know back in the day right uh um what i was doing was completely out of my mind i just wanted to get the bees in the box and get out of the yard so i didn't get stung right yeah, yeah. I was waiting for that first sting so that anxiety thing tends to screw a lot of things up you don't think about that but it's comical as you think back right i see that <laughs> you're right so yeah so, look, um, I, I don't know how long we've been talking. It feels like a minute, but uh, I, I guess it's been a while, so it probably makes sense to wrap this up. Just wondered if you had any other topics you wanted to throw in here. Hmm. I'm telling you, if anybody heard me speak before, I am a strong proponent of controlling varroa mites, the number one problem in the bee industry. Um, people blame all kinds of other things for their woes. But I'm telling you what, the Varroa mite is the number one problem in the beekeeping industry pretty much worldwide. And it's so vitally important to be able to monitor those levels. Uh, alcohol washer is my proposed is my preferred method uh, because it has very reproducible results. Uh, the, the sugar roll, very unreproducible. And um, the mite drop on the bottom board, what does it really mean? Um, yeah. You know, I, I just have problems with all those quantifying how heavily is the infestation. The alcohol washer by hands down is the best way to go. And, um, you know, I encourage people to do that. Keep your mite levels low. Keep your bees fat. 
and uh, you should be in good shape. I think I treated my bees when I got back from uh, Seattle, as I I recall, and I'm going to go in. This weekend was the weekend I was going to do my mite check just to find out that everything was good. Uh, obviously, with the weather going on, it rained all day yesterday. It rained most of today. It's 25-mile-an-hour winds. I'm not going to do it. But uh, I, I don't know if you know, I coached soccer, Tim. So Sundays are out for me. It might be better tomorrow, but I can't do it. So next weekend, I have a bye. I have an open weekend Saturday and Sunday. I'm going to pick the better day. I'm going to follow your heat and, and check and see where my mites are, see if they need any top off. My hives are good and heavy. So from me to you and from all the beekeepers who hear, I, I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate what you've done and the guidance you provide for us coming on the show and t- taking us through your process uh, at your own peril. Not that you can't take it. I know you've got thick skin, but just in general, you know, you're, you're in front of a worldwide audience here and, um, it becomes interesting to talk about this stuff. I can tell you the messages I get back. Uh, some people think I'm great. Some people think I'm a nut. <laughs> That's okay. They can take whatever they want. I'm a, I'm a big boy and I can take it. But from me to you personally, I so much appreciate what you do. And I want to say thanks again for the Malawi uh, interview that we did. I thought that was great. Looking forward to uh, the stuff you're going to do next year. I joked with you that if if you uh, allow me to pack a bag, I'll come with you and bring my camera and my microphones. I would enjoy that trip to uh, come along with you. We'll see what next summer brings. Um, and for the most part, I, all I could say is thanks again for coming on the podcast with us. It's such a pleasure to have you at our disposal for this. Kevin, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you and to talk about these things. And you know what? The reason I'm rather opinionated about certain things is because I deal with the aftermath of people that, that don't manage parasites, that don't get the job done when they get when when they need to get it done. And by and large, I try to I want people to be successful. And in my experience, this is the best way for them to be ex- successful is to follow these things that we've talked about. Um, you know, last year I had a seven percent death loss, lowest death loss I've had in ten years, and in large part I attribute it to the ape of our strip and the fact that my mite levels were exceedingly low. I mean, that's very much key to my personal operation. So, yeah, I'm only saying what worked for me. Yeah, we we were having a discussion this past week, uh, driving home from a beekeepers meeting about new beekeepers. They hear all these different approaches. And as a branch president, um, what do I tell somebody? And my general principle is we're going to tell them to do the conventional method. If you want to start out foundationless or good, good for you, go ahead. I'm okay with that. But if you want to um, just follow the common straight and we'll, we'll tell you what you should do. And then when you become a seasoned beekeeper in a couple seasons and you have something, you can go off the beaten path and try your experiments and whatever. And I think one of the consistent messages I'm able to relay from your guidance is what is the straight and narrow for New Jersey, right? And I trust the fact that every day you get in your truck, you leave your office from the agriculture building, and you're out with beekeepers throughout the state of New Jersey. And that's invaluable. That's something that we don't have the approach to do. So you're the man on the street. You get to see what people are actually doing. And uh, 
wisdom from that standpoint can't be just found in a book. You're, you're literally there every day. And um, we do, again, appreciate your guidance that you provide for all the beekeepers in the state. Kevin, I appreciate your good words. I thank you for them. So, Tim, this has been a great talk. I'm so glad that we find time. We missed one before you were going to Malawi. We were trying to get an episode in, but I know you were just a bit crazy. And I'm really happy the fact I sent you a text today wondering if it would be overtaken by events. And you said, yeah, I'm good. So I'm really excited. And I really look forward to another time when we can have you back again periodically. Just stay in touch with us. Sure. I'm happy to do it, Kevin. I think it's a good service that you provide for beekeepers. I also get some feedback from people that, that heard different things on the podcast. And uh, my friends in Malawi were so thrilled to be able to be on that. I don't think any of them heard it. But when I go back, I'm going to pull up the archive if I have good enough yeah. internet access there where they can hear themselves on on the, on the beekeeper's corner. So um, I think that's really, really kind of cool how um, – how technology has kind of crossed the world, if you will, made the world much smaller for us, really. You sent a note to me at one point, I think you were uh, laughing that you went to do, I think it was a Man Lake show or something, and people called you out for <laughs> your work with us. Oh, was it Was it when I went up and talked to their Man Lake's um, uh, customer appreciation? Yes, yeah. Yeah. yeah, somebody stopped you and said they saw you either in the videos or in the podcast or whatever. Exactly, and, uh, exactly. Yeah, a lot of fun. No, that's good. And, Kevin, keep up the good work on that Northwest Jersey website. That's that's a valuable resource to a lot of beekeepers. A lot of beekeepers see, hear my talks and see the, the American Fowl Brood uh, video we did and all that stuff, and it's all because it's on that website, and I appreciate it. Yeah, and anytime you have videos, Tim, and, and other stuff, send them our way. I'm, I know the listeners appreciate it. We recently posted that one that you gave me from the 90s. Um, yeah. That's a really cool video uh, for people to check out. I know I mentioned it on the show, but if you haven't had a chance, go check it out. It's youtube.com slash NWNJBA. And, Tim, once again, uh, I, I just want to thank you from the listeners and from myself really for coming out. We appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. My pleasure, Kevin It's time well spent as far as I'm concerned. So that's it, everybody. We appreciate uh, all our listeners. If you want to write in Kevin at bkcorner.org is my email address. You can see our show notes for all our past episodes at bkcorner.org. Just click on the show that you're looking for, and we usually list all of the segments in the roundtable. You can go back to the particular topic and also search on the topic you're looking for. I guess with that, uh, Tim, we'll close it down. If you would just hang on with me a little bit, I have a couple things to uh, cover with you post-podcast, and I'll say to everybody, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers work together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in.